Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center Emergency Medicine Residency Program here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Once again, normally we'd be coming to you from the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio, but because of these perplexing pandemic times, we're coming to you from our various separate locations, myself here in my closet, and our hosts will be coming to you from their separate homes. Today's episode will continue along with the theme that was recently started of Basics Are Best. Mastering the basic steps will allow us to deeply handle all the difficult situations that are thrown at us. Two of our chief residents, Dr. Servan and Shreve, will be joined by one of our alumni, Dr. Russell Dragonis, an EM Guywire fan favorite and prior chief resident himself, to discuss how to get yourself prepared to manage a patient's airway. Remember, there are no easy airways until you have successfully passed that tube. So whether you are an intern and want to look like a seasoned professional when the critical moment arrives, or just want to review the important steps to provide superior airway management, the next 30 minutes will be a very useful conversation for you to listen to. Before we get to the chiefs, however, let me first note that there are a few audio irregularities due to our remote location recordings, so consider them a testament to our authentic desire to maintain social distancing while providing you educational conversations. Now, let's take a listen to Drs. Servan, Shreve, and Tregonis. Hey, welcome back to EM Guidewire. Today we're going to be talking about the basics of airway and then kind of as we go along moving to how to manage difficult airways. We're just starting with your brand new intern. What do you need to know? What do you need to do? What do you need to pull? I'm Victoria. I'm one of the third years here at TMC. I'm Brian Shreve. I'm one of the third year residents as well. And I'm Russell Tregonis, a former CMC alum now doing a critical care fellowship up at Indianapolis. Brian and I are super excited because Russell was our chief when we were interns. So we're really happy to have him here. You guys grew up so big and strong. So why don't we start with what we need to pull from the cart when an upper level tells you that you need to go ahead and get set up for an airway. Brian, what are some of the things that you like to get out and get ready? Yeah, so you're going to need to make sure that you have all the tools you need to intubate the patient normally and then also anticipate problems you could have going forward. I usually like to have two of everything. So I like to grab an OPA and an NPA, um, some some sort of superglottic airway. That way, if you have to, in between attempts, maybe you need to bag the patient or something goes wrong, you have a airway adjunct that you can put into the patient. Usually with an OPA, there's a bunch of different sizes in there. The way I size it is essentially the patient's corner of their mouth to their ear. And then with an NPA, it's essentially the same thing from their nose back to their ear is the length I do for those. And then with the eye gels, I like, I prefer eye gels over the LMAs. I don't know how you feel about it, Victoria and Russell, but on them, they have kind of the size based on how much the patient weighs. Normally I'm grabbing a size four, but if they're really big, I'll grab a size five or really small. I grab a size three. Yeah, I agree. I definitely prefer an eye gel. There have been studies that show it forms a better seal than an LMA does. And like you said, Shreve, knowing what size you're reaching for is important. Now, just like with an ET tube or other things, we're doing with the respiratory system, it's all about ideal body weight. So actually the size four fits 
pretty much anyone who's like four foot 10 to six foot five. So most of our patients are going to end up in that category there. So the big thing that I want to emphasize, sometimes we reach for bigger ones because they, hey, the patient's a little bit bigger. Maybe the five will give them a better seal. That five actually sometimes will push down the epiglottis and might actually make your seal a little bit worse, even though you think, hey, it's filling up the mouth better. So I'd really use the four as your primary agent, unless you have some of the reasons preventing you from using it. Great point, Russell. Now how about tubes, Brian? How many are you pulling? What size are you pulling? So I pull an 8.0 for everybody. If I can get that in, that's my preference. We can kind of talk a little bit about why that is, but I, I try to do an 8.0 in everybody. And then I usually go either one or two sizes down, depending on the patient. For the, the smaller patients, I'll usually start with a 7.5 and then have like a 7.0 as my backup, but I usually go with an 8. Yeah. I am not as bold as Brian, and I usually do like a 7.5 for females and an 8.0 for males. And then, like you said, I definitely pull a half size to a size smaller to have ready for me in case you can't fit that tube through the cords. You want to have everything right next to you so you can easily make that transition and go a size down if you need to. And some of the reasons we would want a bigger tube, like Brian was saying, a bigger tube will make it easier to ventilate the patient. And then if the patient needs a bronch in the future, that'll also help your ICU team out as Russell might be able to attest to, make it a little bit easier to do that procedure. Yeah. Once you get down to like a 7.0 tube, it's sometimes tough to get your normal bronchoscope down there. You have to use like a pediatric scope. So Seven and a half and eight, both golden sizes. What honestly, whatever fits the patient. Go start off bigger, and then if you have to go smaller, size down. We'll talk about it in a minute, but kind of jumping ahead. That's why I really like the bougie because once you get that bougie in, if the tube you have is too big, you can always just easily switch out to something smaller and still have a bougie in your airway so you don't have to do all the work again. Yeah, definitely a huge help. Speaking of things that go through the tube, do you usually reach for a rigid silet or a flexible silet when you're intubating adults? I'm usually going with a rigid, no matter what type of plate I'm using. I think it's mostly about what you've practiced with and learned with and what you're able to kind of easily manipulate. Whenever I've tried to use a flexible stylet, I just don't have nearly as good of success. So part of that is just practice. I've always used a rigid, but yeah. Yeah. And I'd say where I went to med school, I did some intubations and we only had flexible. I didn't even see rigid before I came to CMC. So it's definitely about what you're comfortable with. Traditionally, ridges are thought to be better for anterior airways. If you're using like a hyperangulated blade or a D blade, you have to use a rigid for those. Flexible, some people like because you can manipulate the angle. So if you kind of go in and your tube is kind of not hitting the cords where you want them to, you can pull it out quickly, adjust the angle of your tube and then go back in. There also used to be a problem that rigid silets could cause damage to the airway, but that was back when the rigid silets used to kind of poke through the back of the tube and now they don't go down as long. So they're not sticking out the end of the tube and are less likely to puncture your airway. So we feel pretty comfortable using them at CMC. Do you put anything on your stylets, Victoria? Like lube? Do I lube it? Yeah. I lightly lube. I've been told again by the ICU, if you throw a lot of lube on, it can cause some problems when they're bronching, but also it can like assist with mucus plugging. I don't know how true that is since our lube is pretty water soluble, but that's why I tend to, to just go light on the lube. But it is makes it a lot easier to pull your stylet afterwards. Definitely. You don't want to get into that airway and then try to pop your stylet off with your thumb looking cool and pull your tube out. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. I also lube the outside of my tube a little bit. After you got your tubes and everything and you're, you're getting all set up, do you do anything else with your tubes other than putting a stylet in and, and putting some lube on it? 
Well, you got to check the balloon. No one will respect you if you don't have the syringe on and say you've checked the balloon. So you pull out a 10 mil syringe, inflate your balloon, and then make sure you deflate it completely after you're done. I usually leave the syringe attached. That way there's no one fumbling around looking for it after you've successfully passed your tube. And then if EMS is bringing in the patient and they said that the patient's in respiratory arrest, I don't know if they will have a supraglottic airway in place before they get there. So I usually bring a 60 or 50 mil syringe to bedside with me so that you can deflate the king when you're ready to tube. Exactly. This isn't one that you just cut the tubing and, you know, let the air come out. I usually get the syringe and take the air out of King Airways as well. But again, if they've used an eye gel or an LMA, you don't have to worry about that. Now we get to talk about, I think my new favorite airway tool, the Bougie. I've definitely been using it a lot more than I previously was. Do you use a Bougie, Victoria? Yeah, I love using bougies. I actually have started using it if I anticipate it's going to be a difficult airway. Because like you said, if there are problems, you can leave the bougie in place and kind of try and fix some other things around it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, again, one of those things that it's just about feel and using them and getting to know how to use them. And the last time you want to do that is when you really need to reap all the benefits of the bougie. So I've tried using it with all my intubations now. The thing that's really cool about it is you can shape it. You can put a little bit of curve on it. You can help it. It can help you with those super anterior airways that maybe you have like grade three or four view. Not, I haven't felt it on every single airway I've done, but it is nice when you get that tactile feedback as you're hitting the cartilaginous rings as you're going down the airway, which is a great way to be able to confirm where your tube is. And at least in our airway cart, we have both adult and pediatric bougies there. I have been in the case where we, I went to intubate someone and they had a really swollen airway and I couldn't pass an adult bougie, but I got a pediatric bougie through and then we were able to intubate the patient. So it's nice to have both available. You know, some people debate whether or not you need to use bougies all the time. There, there are some studies out there that show that there is a higher first pass success with bougies. Again, 90, I mean, we could probably look at the near data, but what, 95% of your airways are going to be no problem at all. You're not going to have any difficulties. You're not going to need a bougie, but that 5% is where you're definitely going to want to have it. Yeah. And the big benefit to all of that is just if you use bougies for those 95% of the airways that you're talking about, Brian, where you probably don't need it, then you are more comfortable with it when it comes to that 5%. The more practice, the more experience you feel with the bougie, the more you learn how to manipulate it. The first time someone hands it to you, it's just this floppy blue thing. You're trying to push it down in between the cords. And if you're not used to bending it or using different manipulations, it's going to make it much tougher when suddenly it's a tough airway. So I think the big take home from that study that showed that they actually had higher rates of success with using a bougie is that providers just got very comfortable with it. That when that next airway came in, that was a little bit more complex. They were ready with it. They knew how to manipulate the bougie to make it work for you. And it just makes sense. We do how many things, essentially Seldinger technique, where you put in some sort of wire or something and thread something over it. We do a lot of that in emergency medicine. One thing that I will say about the bougie when you're a new learner is people will try and assist you by like holding the bougie or manipulating the end for you. And it's okay to have people help you with it, but make sure you're the one in charge of that. And it's not just someone reaching over your shoulder saying, here, let's twist it and moving it for you. I've run into that a couple of times. Just make sure you're the master of the bougie, you know what's going on. And you shouldn't technically need someone to help rotate it for you. You should be comfortable and have enough control over it yourself. So now to move on to something less controversial, let's talk about some blades. I use the Mac 4 all the time for everybody. It's my favorite. What about you, Brian? <laughs> if you're not using a Mac 4, you're not doing it right. And again, I agree with you guys. We really need to, we really need to reach outside our group and find some people who aren't all CMC trained. But I think 
we all like this for a good reason. The Mac 4 is going to allow you to grab the big tongues, which is the difficult ones, the ones we're worried about, but it also is very maneuverable. Sometimes if you go with a little bit of a smaller blade, like a Mac 3, and the patient has a little bit of a bigger mouth than you expected or having more difficulty with it, there's only so far you can push in a Mac 3. Whereas a Mac 4, you have that extra, it's almost close to an inch longer. You can reach around the tongue, give you a little bit more flexibility. And if you don't need that entire length, you just don't want to put the whole thing in the mouth from there. So it just gives you a lot more maneuverability, gives you a lot more options, and you'll be able to access whatever airway you need to. Yeah. And that extra almost inch that you were talking about is great when you have a floppy epiglottis, then you can just grab it with your Mac 4 like you would with a Miller, which I've done a few times. Speaking of which, do you guys ever use Miller? I've used it in peds. Nope. Fair enough. (laughs) I think what you just hit on right there was why I always use a Mac blade is you can always use a Mac as a Miller. Technically, I mean, you can put the Miller into the Velecula and try to help pull it up uh, with the Miller, but it's, I I just don't feel like the transition is as easy as using a Mac as a Miller, as using a Miller as a Mac. I hope that wasn't confusing. Yeah. I think one time where you could consider using a Miller in adults is really kind of small elderly ladies where you can't get their mouth open enough to fit a Miller in comfort or a Mac in comfortably. A Miller might be able to slide in there a little bit better. You guys ever use the hyperangulated blade and how do you decide who to use that in? I have used it in several traumas where we're worried about a C-spine injury and we're not able to put the patient in a full sniffing position. And then I've also used it in patients who I think are going to have a super anterior airway. How about you, Russell? A lot of times it just has to do with what your facility is able to provide. I'd say that most times you see a glide scope being used, a glide scope still being used with that hyperangulated blade. They don't often have kind of the Mac 4 adapters or things like that for it. So I would definitely emphasize get used to being able to use it because sometimes that might be the only video scope available for you. And those are just going to be the most ubiquitous blades with it. But again, I do I agree with you guys again that using the Mac for using other things that allow you both direct as well as video assistance is going to be a huge benefit for you. I was going to say that's an important thing to point out with the hyperangulated blades is you can't rely on direct at all. It has to be a video. Exactly. Which brings us to the next question. Do you guys do video or direct? And do you guys have a preference for what video laryngoscope you guys use? So definitely as an intern, I was relying a lot on video just until I got more comfortable. And now I'd say even though I'm a third year, some of my attendings are more comfortable with me using the video, but acting like it's a DL. So I won't look at the screen and I'll try and DL. And then I have the video at my side if I do need to kind of turn and use it as a cheat. Exactly. That's why I love the C-Max. As we were mentioning, it's the same geometry as a traditional Mac blade. And so you can use it as both. And so I think it's the perfect tool to use because you have, you know, for VL, your backup is DL. For DL, your backup is VL. And you have both in the same tool, which is pretty cool. And I will say, since video is available, it's the gold standard. I would feel pretty bad if something went wrong and I was trying to DL primarily just to be a little cocky, though I have done it a few times. Exactly. So I can't emphasize that enough, Victoria. I think you nailed it right there. We as emergency medicine doctors, we feel awesome that we're able to DL. We get so much practice with intubations. We get so much practice with difficult intubations and like having that skill say, you know what, I can DL anyone is a great piece of pride to have. And we all love being able to say that we can do that. But at the end of the day, intubating is the single most dangerous procedure that we will ever do to a patient. Patients who get intubated in the emergency department, in the ICU, anywhere in the hospital, 
their mortality compared to everyone else is astronomical. And yeah, a lot of that is because they're getting intubated for a reason. They have underlying comorbidities, they're acutely ill, but the procedure of intubation itself is associated with more morbidity and mortality than anything else that we're going to do in emergency medicine, in the ICU, anywhere. So as ER doctors, we love being able to intubate anything with a DL. We love having that skill. And it's a very, very important thing to have for when video isn't available. But I do want to stress again, if you have video available, we should be using it every single time. And the store's CMAC is, is the greatest blade because there you can practice your DL skills while still having video, not even as a backup, just in your hand at the same time. And if we're going to be putting our patients through our riskiest procedure, we want to have the best tools for it. I mean, we use ultrasound for lines for the same for the same concept there. When surgeons are doing procedures laparoscopically rather than doing them open, we know we have interventions that can make things better for patients, and we definitely need to be taking advantage of it. Very well said. Couldn't agree more. I will say there have been a couple cases where myself or someone else in the room was trying to video and the screen went out. So you do need to be comfortable with using the direct. And I think for everyone in the room's sanity while you're doing that, it's important to be very vocal. A lot of the attendings want you to be saying exactly what you see. So make sure you're yelling out like, I see the epiglottis, now I'm picking up the epiglottis, now I see the arytenoids, now I see the cords, now I'm passing my tube through the cords just to kind of decompress the room. And so everybody knows exactly what's going on. But let's say your video goes out and you're not able to DL and everybody in the room is panicking a little bit and someone suggests that you crike. What do you need to do kind of before you get to that situation to prepare for a crack, Brian? So beyond the biggest thing, which is mental preparation, knowing the procedure and being able to do it, which I, I think when it comes to cricothyroidomy or any other sort of procedure that's, you know, what we would consider high risk and something we don't do very often, being mentally prepared and ready to do it is going to be the, the biggest step. But after that, it's a pretty simple procedure when you break it down into its steps and you don't need a lot of tools. We're blessed to have crite kits and shileys and all these extra adjuncts at the bedside, but all you need is your scalpel, your finger, a bougie, and your tube. Once you have that, you can do a crite, which Honestly, you should already have your tube, albeit you'll probably need a, a smaller size if you're going to do a crike, but you probably have a 6.0 ET tube hanging around. So all you need extra is a scalpel. And so different attendings have different opinions about it. Some people feel the cricoid membrane on every single person that they intubate. Some will, will feel it and patients who they anticipate it's going to be a difficult airway. Some people will mark the cricoid membrane before the procedure if they anticipate that it may be needed. And then in the most serious scenario, you're going to have someone who's already prepped, standing there holding a knife while you're attempting the first pass intubation. And then if you don't get it, they're going to be cutting on that patient's neck. Yeah, I think what you said about knowing the procedure is really important, Brian. Having run through it mentally a bunch of times, I know some attendings who run through it in their head before at least once a week on their way to work. So I think knowing what you're going to do and knowing where everything is are probably the two biggest obstacles aside from just making the decision to crike itself. Once you got those three things down, then it should be, like you said, a fairly simple procedure. I think the other thing too is if you're prepared going in beforehand, it's going to be a chaotic room. And so if you have prepared beforehand, you're going to be calm and you're going to be able to complete this procedure and you're going to look like a rock star. Exactly. All right, so maybe we should move on now that we've kind of walked through all of the equipment that you're going to need. Let's figure out how you're going to actually set up for the airway. Oh, one thing. Sorry, real quick. I don't know about you, Victoria, but my rate limiting step is always getting suction set up. For whatever reason, it just 
takes me forever to do that. And I, I feel like it's because everybody always overlooks suction, like your RT and everybody else. They're trying to get a bunch of other stuff ready. But to me, I don't know. Suction is one of the most important things. And I always have to have two suctions. I never want to have just one. Yeah, 100% two suctions every single time. I can't tell you the number of times where I set up for an airway. I turned on the suctions. I had them on the bed. And then either someone moved one of the sections that I had, I usually stick them on under the mattress on either side. Yep. If somebody moved one, they wrapped it around a bed pole, or they walked in, were annoyed by the noise, and turned the section back off. So that's one reason to have two. Also, if you're sucking out a lot of blood or chunky vomit, one of your sections could become clogged, and you need that second one right on your other side. Always. All right. Setting up an airway. Your mindset when you set up any airway is that you should be optimizing your chances for first pass success. Definitely. I mean, there's so much research and data out there that shows that the best way to intubate a patient and the safest way is to do it on your first pass. The more you have to attempt to intubate this patient, the more likely they are to have a complication. And some of those adverse complications or adverse events include things like aspirations, desaturations, accidentally intubating the goose, hypotension, dysrhythmias, and cardiac arrest. So all pretty bad things that we'd like to avoid. So if you've made more than four attempts, your incidence of an adverse effect is 70.6%. So that's pretty high. And we want to obviously avoid that for our patients. And so if you're an intern and someone's asked you to get ready for an airway, at least in our facility, that means you are getting out every single piece of equipment. You are figuring out how you want to position the patient and you are controlling the room. At our institution, at least, we do not depend on respiratory therapy for getting any of that set up. Our RTs are great. We love them. They know how to do it. But if you're the ED doc and you're supposed to be the master of the airway, you should know it from start to finish. And again, it's all about that muscle memory of doing the same thing over and over and over again. Like you said, you know exactly where your suctions are. You know exactly where your bougie is. You know exactly where you put your OPA. So if you encounter any sort of difficulty, you know exactly where that is. If you have someone different setting it up for you every single time, you're going to reach for something and it's not going to be there. And then you're going to risk harming the patient. Just to quickly review, when I go in the room, I pull a tube, a stylet. I check it, the tube with my syringe, I lube the tube, I make sure I have several backups in place like an OPA, an eye gel. I grab my D-blade and a handle, I make sure the light works on that. I grab my video, make sure that it's plugged in, charged, the screen is working, and I grab a bougie. And then like Brian said, I set up the suction and make sure there's at least two that it's on continuous and max suction and that everything is set up so that you can reach that suction all the way into the patient's mouth. I think one thing that we forget to do, or at least I've seen a lot of people forget to do, is pre-oxygenation with the patient until they've gotten out all their supplies and they're getting set up. That's something that you can start doing as soon as you decide to make the decision to intubate that patient. Great point, Brian. So pre-oxygenation, or what it should really be called is denitrogenation, needs to occur for at least three minutes. And that allows time for as much oxygen to saturate your hemoglobin and kind of replace nitrogen as possible. And that will delay your time to desaturation once you've decided to tube the patient. Exactly. We want as much time as we possibly can have. I think we all remember learning in med school or, you know, at some point in our careers, hey, you know, if you denitrogenize somebody, they can go apneic for eight minutes. I think the thing to remember is that's in healthy patients. And usually our patients have some sort of pathology that it's going to make them desaturate even quicker 
quicker. But yeah, even if we can extend that time an extra 30 or 45 seconds to help us get that airway, that's going to provide huge benefits on the back end. And then not all of our patients are going to be easy to pre-oxygenate. Some of them come to us already hypotensive. Some aren't going to tolerate us putting on a non-rebreather or nasal cannula. Some are already so obtended that they're going to require some BVM. So some of the things that you can do to optimize your ability to pre-oxygenate is to consider placing a nasal trumpet or an OPA, especially an obese patient or someone with a lot of floppy tissue. But one thing to recognize with an OPA is a lot of your patients are going to have a gag reflex. So if they're not paralyzed yet, you may stimulate that and get vomit all over your airway. So I usually don't place an OPA until I maybe I've had to make a second attempt after I've already paralyzed the patient. How about you, Brian? I'm definitely more a fan of an NPA as well for the exact reasons you talked about. I mean, obviously conscious patients don't like an NPA, but they can usually at least tolerate it for enough time to help you get them pre-oxygenated. Another important maneuver that's often overlooked is a jaw thrust. Even if the patient is breathing on their own, maybe they're a little obtended, but you've got just a non-rebreather on them. I still, if they can tolerate it and they're lying down, I do a jaw thrust. And especially if you're using the BBM on them. Definitely. How do you pre-oxygenate your patients? What are you using for this blow by oxygen, you know, like in a PEDS patient or, or how are you doing that? Yeah. Ideally, if my patient is breathing on their own, I throw on both a nasal cannula and a non-rebreather and I crank them both up as high as they can go. So nasal cannula needs to be at least 15 liters per minute. And then non-rebreather, I try and we have a special high flow tree at our emergency department. So we can crank our non-rebreathers all the way up to 60 liters per minute, which I love but as much oxygen as I can get down their face as possible is what I try and do. Exactly. I'm doing the same exact thing. I'm throwing both of those things on. I'm turning them up as high as they can go. And I'm making it sound like there's a freight train coming through that, that resuscitation room with all the, the flow we got going into them. And if they're not breathing on their own or they need a little peep and you have to bag them, I still put a nasal cannula on because that's going to be important for passive oxygenation when I do go to tube them. But I make sure that I can still create a really tight seal and we'll kind of talk about that in a separate episode on how to bag, but make a super tight seal. If you can jaw thrust while making a tight seal, go for it. But I often have somebody else in the room do the jaw thrust for me or vice versa. RT is making the seal with the BBM and I'm doing the jaw thrust. Just really important that the patient has an open airway so you can get all that oxygen down where it needs to be. I think the important thing about doing the jaw thrust too is two people bagging is always going to be better than one person bagging. And I think the whole C-grip that they teach, you can get a really good seal on one side, but you're going to have an air leak. And like you said, this patient needs needs some peep and that's why we're, we're bagging them. And so I do think having someone, you know, make that seal and do the jaw thrust at the same time actually gives you more effective ventilation with the BVM. Sometimes with big faces, I have little hands and I can't do both. I get it around the front of the jaw pretty well, but then have to have assistance getting yeah. the thrust part. And again, as cool and sexy as it is to intubate somebody, somebody once told me, you know, it's, it's awesome to intubate someone, but the way you're going to save somebody's life is being able to bag them. Because if you need to, you can bag somebody for a while, depending on what situation you're in. So like you said, if you're between attempts or you know, something happens that you need to bag the patient, that's a good skill to be able to have to effectively do it. Yeah. And then lastly, one form of pre-oxygenation that I think can be overlooked is using your non-invasive to pre-oxygenate. Do you ever do that, Brian? Yeah, occasionally we use it. Again, it's all about patient selection with the, the non-invasive. I do think, especially given the advances we've made, 
and how often we use non-invasive now. A lot of our patients are at least getting trialed on non-invasive before we have to move towards intubation. Obviously not the case with everybody. So if you already have them on non-invasive, you're definitely leaving them on. And one major contraindication to non-invasive is kind of altered mental status or extreme agitation of the patient. But I'd say this is a case where that doesn't really apply because if you're getting ready to intubate that patient, you're not leaving the room, you're not leaving them alone. And so this might be a time where you do a little bit of a delayed sequence intubation, give them some ketamine while you're setting up for your airway to help them tolerate that non-invasive to get pre-oxygenated. And then they're already dissociated when you need them to be and you can go ahead and push the paralytic when you're ready to tube. Exactly. And so we already talked a little bit about why we pre-oxygenate. It's to have that safe apneic time. We're doing RSI. And so, you know, we are trying to avoid bagging the patient if we can. Obviously, as we discussed, if you need it, we have to do that. But it's it's about giving us as much time as we possibly can to intubate the patient. And important to note is that we really want to delay that desaturation as much as possible. Once they're SpO2 falls below 90%, their PA2 will quickly drop into a dangerous hypoxic range because fewer and fewer oxygen molecules are going to be bound to hemoglobin. Are there any patients that you worry are going to desaturate quicker than others? Oh, for sure. I feel like sometimes you just walk in the room and you're like, oh, this patient's going to need that tube in under 10 seconds. Definitely anyone with a critical illness, anyone that maybe for whatever reason, we don't have time to pre-oxygenate for the full three minutes, anyone who's not going to be able to move their diaphragm well, like severely obese patients or pregnant patients, anyone that might have some shunt physiology and worried about an airway occlusion like angioedema, or if they have a state that can cause a high metabolic rate like sepsis, and then anyone who's profoundly anemic. So, I think considering all of those things, it's not very many of our ED patients, right, Brian? No, not at all, which is important, again, to highlight why we need to pre-oxygenate every single patient, regardless of their starting oxygen saturation. Just because our, our decision to intubate them isn't related to hypoxia, given all those factors you just talked about, most of these people have the propensity to become hypoxic during intubation. And then moving on, I know we said that pre-oxygenation can sometimes be overlooked, but I'd say the single thing that gets overlooked more more than anything else is patient positioning, which I think is hugely important. Would you agree? Exactly. I think this is the key to not only intubation, but every single procedure that you do in the emergency department, regardless of what it is, you know, from your lack repairs all the way up to, you know, putting in a surgical chest tube, all going to be about the positioning. And that's both the position of the patient and your positioning to make sure that you're in a comfortable spot to get what you need to do done. How do you usually position the patient to optimize their airway? So the first thing I do is usually they get transferred over to our bed or they kind of come in from triage and slump in the bed and they're halfway down the bed, their feet are hanging off. So I quickly ask my nursing staff for assistance, getting their head all the way up right so that the top of their head is almost hanging off the top of the gurney. And then I make sure that they're in the sniffing position. So so their tragus of their ear, kind of that like part that when we were in high school, a lot of cool kids were getting pierced or like the, the little flap in the front needs to be lined up with the patient's sternal notch. They need to have their chin lifted. And then if possible, like we said, have the jaw thrust maneuver being done to them. And then I like to have the head of the bed at my xiphoid process. And then especially if the patient is a little bit bigger, has some soft tissue that I want to kind of remove from their chest or from their neck, I put them in a little bit of reverse Trendelenburg to kind of help use gravity to my advantage and get that tissue out of the way. And you can even prop their head up a little bit. Usually I like to go to about 30 degrees. Some 
people think that this doesn't make a huge difference, but especially if I'm worried that the patient is going to desat as soon as I lay them flat, I'll keep them up a little bit. I definitely agree. I definitely use the reverse Trendelenburg or the head of the bed up at 30 degrees and the patients who you said, I want to kind of get some weight off of there and you know use gravity to our benefit. Do you want to run through one more time what you would do from start to finish in a patient that you're going to intubate, Victoria? Yeah. So start to finish, when I get in the room, pull all of your equipment, set up suction, set up to pre-oxygenate, make sure you have a nasal cannula, a non-rebreather, and a BVM. Even if you're not planning on using your BVM for pre-oxygenation, it needs to be hooked up just in case you do have to make a second attempt and bag the patient in between. Make sure That's that- key, by the way. I've seen so many people bag someone without oxygen. And that's also known as suffocation. When you put a mask over someone that doesn't have any flow going. So again, it, we've talked about it before, but it is our responsibility to make sure that happens. It's not the RTs. It's not your attendings. It's not anybody else in the room. That's our responsibility. Great point, Brian. Okay. So we've got all the pre-oxygenation stuff. Make sure you have the correct tube. You've checked your backup tubes. You've lubed your tubes. You got your silet in, your video and DL are ready to go. And that's the time to nicely turn to your nurses and ask for medications. We'll have a whole separate podcast on what meds to choose. And then you need to turn to your monitor and check the patient's hemodynamics. Acknowledge that they've been pre-oxygenated once the three minutes is up. Make sure you've maximized the patient's positioning at that point. Give your medications, wait for your paralytic to work, and then go ahead with tubing them. Once you've got the tube in place, you want to call out to the room where you placed your tube, you know, like 24 at the lip or whatever. That's going to be important for nursing to be able to write down. We're always taught to leave our blade in place once we've got the tube through the cords until it's been confirmed by both end title and by someone listening. You want to make sure you get color change as well. At that point, I usually come out with the blade, let RT secure the tube, and my hand is usually on it until RT says that they've, they've got it, the tube is secured. And then you want to make sure you call for post-intubation meds. If you walk away before that is done, then your patient is paralyzed and not sedated, which is almost as bad as suffocating them. You also want to hang around and make sure that your chest x-ray confirms the position as well. And that's the time that you can finally relax and do your victory dance and high five people. And if you do all of that, especially as an intern early in the department, people are going to be pretty impressed and comfortable with you taking tubes from here on out. Definitely. I think the the two things you hit that I wasn't taught until I came to CMC, the first thing is leaving that blade in place until that tube is almost secured. You know, there's so much that can go on that can pull that tube out. And part of the reason that each time you try to intubate a patient again, subsequent passes causes problems is putting that blade in and out causes so much airway trauma. So getting that blade in, leaving it, keeping your view in while you get that tube secure is key. And then the second thing was, again, it's our responsibility to hold that tube and to confirm with the RT that it is completely secured and not going to move. Both things that I learned after coming to CMC that kind of take you to the next level when it comes to intubation. Yeah. Great point, Brian. So we're going to stop there for today. Those are pretty much the initial basics of what you need to do to be successful at your kind of straightforward intubations. And I think a great place to start if you're new to commanding airways. Boom. Boom indeed, Dr. Shreve. Thank you to Drs. Servan and Shreve. And also a warm thank you to Dr. Russell Chergonis for once again joining us from his critical care fellowship. We look forward to spending more time with him in the 
coming weeks and months. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us and look forward to seeing you here again at the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out. Just asked me if I wanted to record on the cloud. I don't know how to get things off the cloud, so... You guys still there? Yeah. Yep. I just got all these big uh, alerts on my thing. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, all the talk of lube kind of threw you off there. Yeah. Are you still there, Brian? Yeah, is there? Yeah. Yep, we're here. You guys got me? We still hear you loud and clear, handsome. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, all these like things popped up on my computer saying it got all messed up. I call my audio stuff. Hmm. Cool. I'm back. Okay. Um, all right. Syringes. Oh, can you guys still hear me? Uh, we got you now. We kind of missed most of that, though. Good, good, good. So I was really telling how bad Dr. Brian Shreve was, but I'll, I'll rewind to there. I just realized because, still recording. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's right, B. Allen. I don't care. <laughs> Boom. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Thanks. <laughs> I hope it ends with you saying boom.